Acts 14, chap, uh, chapter 14, verses 1 to 28. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted out in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Thanks, Zoe. Did a great job pronouncing all those place names. Well done. G'day, night church. It is good to be here with you again. I'm looking forward to being with you here in the building even more, though. Uh, we are answering tonight questions of what we've been doing this week as kind of restrictions have been easing. Um, well, the Campbell household is a bit of a milestone this week. One of our kids went back to school. Hallelujah. 
The other one goes back tomorrow, praise the Lord. Our growth group uh, came around for dinner this week for the first time in like months. So good. And we booked international flights for next year. Now, it's been a long time since we've done that. And you know, sometimes when you haven't done something for a while, you kind of forget what it's like. Forget what to expect. Well, if you were to base your expectations on flying by going to the airline's promotional material, you might expect that boarding a flight doesn't involve a mad rush to get onto the plane. It's actually quite a calm, peaceful experience. You'd also expect there to be ample room for all of your carry-on luggage. I mean, she looks positively delightful, doesn't she, at the space that she's got to work with. Now, as does anyone who uses the in-flight entertainment, I mean, she makes it look like such a cinch, you can even do it while drinking a Shiraz. (laughs) Then, of course, that brings us to the issue of food. And according to this airline, you should definitely expect that your whole family will be absolutely stoked at the food that's on offer. And, you know, best of all, it looks like they've gone and just massively extended the legroom in economy, which is great. It's about time. Of course, if someone boarded a plane expecting something like that, well, then they'd be in for a rude shock, wouldn't they? Expectations are important. They have a powerful influence on us, don't they? Having the right expectations is also important. Expectations that actually align with reality, with the way things really are. That's important. You know, you can actually see the importance of expectations all throughout Paul's first missionary journey in Acts chapters 13 and 14. If you're just jumping in with us tonight, welcome. It's great to have you here. We're into our third week working through the middle section of the book of Acts, which is really the exploration of what happened as the gospel of Jesus Christ moves out from Jerusalem for the very first time as it spreads out and beyond. Which is precisely what Jesus had promised his disciples would happen, right? Salvation to the ends of the earth. Now the Apostle Paul, of course, is a key cog in bringing the gospel to the Gentile world. Gentiles being those who were not Jewish. He'd actually been specially commissioned by God for this very task back in chapter 9 of the book of Acts. With a dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, God says this of Paul. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. It's a pretty tall order, right? But, But Paul took it seriously. We see how seriously he took it in tonight's passage, in fact. And in chapter 13, he sets off from the city of Antioch with his good mate, Barnabas. And for the better part of of a year, the two of them get about the kind of northern, the northeastern side of the Mediterranean, preaching the gospel. Now, the passage we read tonight, chapter 14, it picks up partway through this mission, while Paul was in the region of Galatia, visiting the cities of Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Now, you'll have noticed, perhaps, as we read through the passage together, Paul and Barnabas, they run into a fair amount of conflict, don't they? It literally follows them from place to place, 
And a big reason for this has to do with expectations. Expectations. We're going to start by taking a look at two in particular. Jewish expectation first, then the Laconian expectation second. After that, we're going to consider what Paul's expectations were and finish by thinking about our own. That's the plan. And our first question is asking, you know, what is going on with the Jews here? Like basically every city that Paul visits, he will rock up first to the, to the synagogue, he'll preach the gospel. Many Jews will believe, but the ones that don't, they get super crazy mad. In chapter 13, which we didn't, didn't read, I encourage you to read this week if you get the chance, uh, it happens in Pisidian Antioch. And he's only there for seven days before they get expelled from the town by the Jewish leaders. In the next city, in Iconium, it steps up a notch. Paul preaches, a great number of people come to faith. But those who don't decide that Paul needs to die. And they hatch a plan to murder him. Now, luckily, he and Barnabas kind of catch wind of the plot, so they just kind of leg it to Lystra, 30 kilometers down the road. But the angry Jews follow after them and, and almost, almost manage to get Paul executed. Can you imagine how different world history might look if they had succeeded? So, what is this? Paul opens his mouth and some Jews want to then try to kill him. What's going on? Well, we didn't have time to read chapter 13. As I said, it's 52 verses long. But in there, we actually get a lengthy kind of account of Paul's synagogue sermon that he gives while he's in Pisidian Antioch. He preaches the gospel. Christ crucified and resurrected and he deeply roots Jesus in the Jewish, Jewish scriptures, right? He is the long-awaited Messiah, the fulfillment of all of God's promises, and not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. Now, the Jews who couldn't swallow what Paul was preaching, it was actually their expectations that, was, that were causing them to choke. Because you see, they were expecting this all-conquering military Messiah to come and make Israel great again. They were expecting Messiah to turn up and start nailing Romans to crosses, not end up being nailed to one himself, right? So to suggest that the Messiah would have died in such a way was a ridiculous claim. Paul's gospel is actually a desecration of their idea of Messiah and, 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 and it was even an affront to God himself. Paul's gospel also elevated the Gentile world. You see, Gentiles, were, were the, they were the enemy. They were unclean. They were the cause of Jewish oppression. And, and they worshipped all manner of pagan gods. And so as a Jew, you were expected to, cle- to keep clear of Gentiles. Stay away. And yet here's this guy, and he's proclaiming that it was the day of their salvation. He was preaching that God was now welcoming them, unclean Gentiles, into his covenant and they didn't even need to become Jews first. Absolutely outrageous. But perhaps most offensive of all was the fact that Paul's gospel was was effectively redrawing the boundaries of what it meant to be truly Jewish. You see, by proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, 
Paul was threatening the Jewish world that unless they recognized Jesus as the promised Savior, they too would be forfeiting their own place in God's family, regardless of their ancestry, regardless of their observance of the law. One, two, three. For those who rejected the message, what Paul and Barnabas were proclaiming was unconscionable. And yet we're told aren't we, that a great number actually came to believe the message as it was preached and the gospel started taking root wherever it went. And so those who were opposed to it, for all these reasons, they were hell-bent on stopping it. They had the wrong expectations. And it actually ended up blinding them from seeing the truth of the gospel. Jewish opposition became the cause of plenty of suffering and hardship faced by the early church. And, and yet the greatest danger that Paul ever faced was at the hands of a Gentile crowd in Lystra. Now the story picks up in verse 8 of chapter 14. After fleeing Iconium, Paul and Barnabas uh, jump across to the next town, to Lystra. And here they encounter a man, we're told, who had been born crippled, never walked a day in his life. Paul sees him at a distance. He recognizes that, that this man had faith to be healed. So he tells the cripple to stand up. And miraculously, the guy does for the very first time in his life. This miracle causes such a stir in the city, right, that those who are watching become convinced that that these two powerful strangers must be none other than the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes. And they actually start to worship them. I mean, talk about a change of fortunes, right? In one city they get death threats. In the next they're getting treated like gods. It's like, what is going on? Well, it turns out that the Lyconians had been expecting Hermes and Zeus to turn up. There was a, an old legend that, that told of a time long ago when when these two gods had visited the city in disguise and they were so poorly treated that they ended up flooding the entire region as punishment. Ever since then, the Lyconians had been waiting for their return. So when these two, two strangers kind of roll into town, displaying miraculous powers, the Lyconian welcome party kind of kicks into full gear, like they ain't going to make the same mistake again. But of course... Their wrong expectations lead them to make a different and far worse mistake. Because instead of listening to and believing Paul's preaching, they turn hostile. And maybe it was out of embarrassment for their mistake, or maybe it was just outrage at these two guys who now they considered to be imposters. But things became so violent um, once the angry Jews from Antioch and, I and Iconium turn up, right? They whip the crowd into a frenzy and they convince them to stone Paul, which they do. Now, stoning was no joke, right? Back then, it was the most popular form of mob justice for a reason, because it worked, Right, the crowd would basically surround you and then from like point-blank range, they would hurl fist-sized rocks into your head and your body until you collapsed. And they wouldn't stop throwing until you had stopped living. 
So I can't imagine the ghastly state that Paul must have been in because when they dragged him outside of the city, they figured he was dead. This is just the sixth stop on Paul's very first missionary journey and it almost comes to a screeching halt right here. Paul's ministry was almost over before it really started. But of course, God clearly wasn't yet finished with this guy. As the disciples gather around Paul's broken and bloodied body, probably trying to work out where they were going to bury him, he stands up. He dusts himself off and he walks right back into the city. He wastes no time recuperating or healing from having been stoned. We're told the very next day he and Barnabas continue on to the next city. Like, that right there is the definition of the phrase man on a mission, right? He is completely 100% undeterred. It's, it's, it's remarkable. No matter the fierceness of the opposition, no matter the amount of suffering or loss or hardship or persecution that he faces, it's not going to stop him and it can't shut him up. Why is that? How is that? Well, I chalk it up to at least two things. I mean, undoubtedly, Paul's perseverance is empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? Like, God's giving him courage and boldness and the words to speak, for sure. But also, Paul's operating with the right expectations. Now, to understand what these are, we've actually got to jump back again for a moment to his conversion in Acts 9. See, there's a second element to the mission that I I left off when I mentioned it the first time. Yes, it will involve proclamation, but also persecution. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. The road is going to be bumpy. From the very first moment Paul starts following Jesus, these two expectations, right? Proclamation and persecution. They form Paul's foundation. They're a part of his new birth DNA, right? From the, from the very beginning, he understands that these two things go hand in hand. You can't proclaim a, a Messiah who suffered without also facing the threat of suffering yourself. You know, rather than getting all mopey and worried about it, like we probably would, This task of of persecuted proclamation actually brings Paul joy. Which which seems super weird, right? If you've got your Bibles there, take a look at the very last verse of chapter 13, verse 52. Paul and Barnabas have just been kind of tossed out of Pisidian Antioch after just one week as they make their way to Iconium. It says, take a look, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. What? It's like you just failed, mate. (laughs) They didn't want a bar of it. They ran you out of town. They didn't like what you had to say. And yet, there's no sense of defeat from Paul, is there? There's no self-doubt about the mission. You know, should I really be doing this? Instead, the two of them are filled with joy. They've got a spring in their step. Why? Well, it's because Paul realizes that he's, he realizes what he's in the middle of, right? He, he knows what's going on. He knows what time it is. This is the end game, right? The kingdom of God is showing up. 
the age to come was breaking in to the present age. And, and that meant that it was finally time for God's salvation to flow beyond Israel to the ends of the earth. Paul is joyful because he's got front row seats to the coming of the kingdom. Last month, you might remember hearing or feeling that Sydney was hit by an earthquake. I didn't notice the quake myself, I only read about it after the fact. But earthquakes are usually caused by the movement of tectonic plates as they kind of shift against each other. And that, that shifting and friction underneath is what produces earthquakes up here. Now, in a cosmic spiritual sense, that's what's happening for the early church. You see, the, the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus has ushered in the start of a new age. It kicks off the coming of the kingdom of God. And so kind of like two tectonic plates, we've got the present age, which is now actually colliding with the age to come. Two kingdoms shifting against one another. And Paul and Barnabas, you know, they're right there on the fault line between the two. Of course, there's going to be seismic activity, right? Paul expects both proclamation and persecution. He expects that some will hear the message and come into the kingdom, while others will reject it and seek to shut it down. That's exactly what we see happening throughout the book of Acts, exactly as Paul was expecting. The question then for us to end on is this. What are you expecting when it comes to this life? What are, you, what are your expectations? I mean, we all have them. Even if we don't think about it all that much, they shape our decisions, they influence our reactions and they fuel our daydreams. What are you expecting from this life? Do you have career expectations or academic expectations? Family or romantic or financial expectations? Take a moment to answer. What picture of the future have you got hanging in the room of your heart? Chances are that picture looks pretty similar to your neighbours, to your co-workers, or to any of your non-believing mates. And if, if they were to take a look at your picture, they might even mistake it for their own. Is that true? Is that a problem? Well, I think it is. Not so much because of what's in there, but because of what's not in there. Like, does anyone's picture of the future include hardships suffered for being a follower of Jesus? Because it should. When Paul finished his time in the city of Derby, he and Barnabas, as you can see, actually retrace their steps all the way along the different places that they'd visited, which you've got to admit, it's a pretty bold move. They went back to places that they'd been tossed out of, back to places with people who had threatened their lives. But they did it out of love and concern for all the churches that they just started. Now, if you're still following along with your Bibles, take a look at verse 22 of chapter 14. Luke tells us that they went from city to city, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. 
Now, we don't know what Paul said to these brand new Christians apart from a single sentence. I don't know, maybe Luke thought that this kind of summed up Paul's message. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Gee, thanks, Paul. I feel so encouraged. (laughs) Now, just to make a few things clear here, Paul's not saying that suffering is like the price of admission, like it's some kind of entry fee that we have to pay. What he is saying, though, is that the journey to the kingdom will be bumpy. That's the first thing. Second thing is he's not just talking about himself and Barnabas. See, the we there is collective. I mean, think about it. These newly formed churches didn't need to be reminded of Paul's hardships. They'd just seen them firsthand, right? What they needed to know was that Paul's experience was expected. It was normal. It's kind of like when you're on a plane in the middle of watching some B-grade movie. You can barely even hear. Suddenly the picture freezes and you hear, Uh, Evening, folks. This is your captain speaking. Just uh, letting you know there's a bit of turbulence ahead. Please take your seats and uh, fasten your seatbelts. Thank you. It's like, sure, that kind of sucks if you're six deep waiting in line for the toilet. It's like, how long is the seatbelt sign going to be on for? But really, I mean, no one's freaking out, are they? Because turbulence is expected on a plane. It kind of goes with the territory, doesn't it? And it might not make for the most comfortable of flights, that's all right. I mean, after all, the flight isn't the main game, is it? It's the tropical destination that's important. Some turbulence is completely normal. It doesn't mean that something's wrong. It just means you're flying. Suffering in the Christian life is a lot like turbulence at 40,000 feet. As Paul doubles back through all of these newly planted churches, it's like he's issuing them a turbulence warning. Life spent following Christ will be bumpy. Opposition and hardships, they are normal and expected. It goes with the territory. It doesn't mean that something's wrong. It actually just means you're following a man the world crucified. (laughs) You know, I've been wondering this week, when we pray to God and ask him to help us make, make us more like Jesus, is it ever his suffering that you've got in mind? Maybe that's a far more dangerous prayer than you've ever realized. And it shouldn't be a surprise, right? Jesus says it to his disciples plain as day. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Why would we expect anything different? But we kind of do, don't we? If we're honest, we kind of do. Here in Australia, you know, we live in one of the the richest, safest, and religiously free parts of the Western world. And you know what? That puts us all in a great deal of danger. The danger of thinking that freedom and safety is normal for the Christian life. You know what it does? It produces a brand of Christianity that is brittle. And brittle Christians who are so preoccupied with the comfort of the flight, they've lost sight of the destination. (laughs) Friends, freedom, safety, being comfortable in life now is lovely. Go ahead and give God thanks for it. But as you do, 
remember that it is absolutely not the norm for the Christian life. And the life and teachings of Jesus and Paul and Peter, they testify to that, as does the story of the early church, as does much of Christian history in many parts of the world throughout the last two millennia. Even the experience of brothers and sisters around the world today, on the 24th of October, testifies that freedom and safety are not normal for those who follow a crucified Messiah. You might have heard of Open Doors. They're a ministry that support uh, persecuted Christians around the world. It's a great thing to sign up for, I reckon, the, the, the weekly mailing list to actually hear what's going on in the world in this regard to help burst you out of that bubble of thinking that the way life is right now for me is the way that it's, you know, is normal and expected. But Open Door, they release a, a watch list every year talking about persecution around the world. And for 2020, they reported that more than 4,500 Christians lost their lives because of their faith. And a similar, a similar number, you can see there, were unjustly arrested or imprisoned. And they estimate that globally... Four, 340 million Christians currently live in countries where they might suffer high levels of persecution. It's like, wow, look at all those numbers. They're not just numbers. There are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that was just last year. Friends, the freedom and the safety that we enjoy now is unusual. It's not normal. And we cannot and we must not expect that it's going to last because history tells us that it won't. But you know what? The book of Acts tells us that that's okay. That's okay because you see, opposition to the gospel is nothing new, but it's also nothing to worry about. Like Paul, we've got front row seats to the coming of the kingdom. We can see it breaking in when we see God's love extended. Like with the soup kitchen and ESL ministries we heard about last week. Right? God's kingdom breaking in. We see it breaking in as the gospel reaches out into places. Like the kayak club that William and Taria were talking about earlier. Friends, we are living on the fault line. So we will be shaken. But God won't be stopped. Because nothing can stop the spread of the gospel. Or slow the coming of his kingdom. Let's pray.